Hi, my name is Addie Morefoot. I'm a reporter with Variety. I want to introduce James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte, executive producers and directors of The Big Con. Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you. We're excited. Well, yeah, I'm excited too. I have so many questions. Um, I'll just start with the first one. First of all, what a story, number one. I mean, just it keeps going and it's just amazing. Um, but how did you both discover this story? Was it through the Wall Street Journal, 60 Minutes, or did someone come to you with it? Uh, it was actually through someone uh, that we knew, uh, um, someone who's actually executive producer on this project with us, Peter King. Uh, he worked with us on McMillions. We've known him for many years. And we had dinner with him, sat down uh, towards the end of, of finishing McMillions. And he's like, I, I think I got something. There's this crazy lawyer in the small town of Kentucky. Uh, he stole like half a billion dollars and had somewhere around like 17 to 27 wives and basically tried to turn himself into James Bond. And I go, okay, that sounds uh, really interesting. <laughs> so as we dug into it more, we just realized how fascinating of a character Eric is. And then also the huge impact he was having on not just this community, but on social security <laughs> as a whole. And we just had to continue to dive in. And when, so what, you finished McMillions, which came out in 2020. Um, when did you start working on this project? 2020, immediately. 2020, okay. <laughs> and, I've been actually a little yeah, bit actually, yeah, we, before that. Yeah, we, yeah. we started, yeah, we started this uh, a little bit in 2019, like towards the very end of finishing McMillions, uh, just on our own internally. Okay. I mean, you had, you had um, obviously Eric participates, Sarah Carver, Jennifer Griffith, um, Damian Paletta, as well as many others, partake in the documentary. Um, what was that process like of securing uh, their participation? Well, for for most people, it was uh, in some senses it was a lot easier than McMillions because Sarah and Jennifer, the two whistleblowers who are featured in this series, have been outspoken about this for years. Uh, they have wanted people to pay attention to this story and have been neglected, ignored. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the main reasons why we, we found this to be so compelling. It's just like what happens when, you know, you ignore a problem <laughs> and then it just continues to escalate and escalate. So we were very grateful that, that they were able to participate. Uh, Damien, it was, it was like an instant kindred spirit of, obsession with this story <laughs> like uh and he was like how how can i like i love this i'm i think he was just eager to talk to someone else who had gone down the rabbit hole like he had uh eric was i, I you know like anybody who has committed a crime as grand as this uh it took time it took time to really establish a relationship and build the trust that we wanted to tell a story that wasn't necessarily going to be a uh, beautiful piece on Eric. Um, and he had to accept that, but that we would do everything in our power to present him in an honest way and make people see him in a way that perhaps he hadn't been seen in past reporting. Um, and that was kind of an important thing when we, when we target our subjects is, how to humanize everybody um, in the process. 
I'm going to go back to that, but I wanted, once he signed on, is that how you got his daughter to participate as well as his colleague, um, whose name I'm blanking out on who, you know, had to go out to Steve Croft and give him pins. That guy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> David. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it really is. Um, it's a, sort of a snowball effect. So for us, uh, Sarah and Jennifer were eager to tell her story. I mean, the second we saw them, it was like a, fire hose hitting us but with eric we really had to spend time to work to get him on board but once he did he said well you definitely should talk to my daughter and once you kind of have the permission of the main person then when we reach out to other people or if he helped us reach out to other people they're more apt to uh to come on board and talk and a big thing for brian and myself is we're very much about like we understand that this is a person's real life this isn't just some like made up story. And so we'll, whether someone wants to be involved or not, we'll say like, look, we'll come out to you. Let's sit down, let's have lunch, let's just talk in person. The worst thing that's gonna happen is you'll get a free lunch out of the deal, but we just want you to know what our intentions are. We're not the slick Hollywood, whatever anybody outside of LA thinks of the people who work in entertainment. And you know, we, we lay out everything and, uh, we were, we were lucky enough for everybody to believe in us to tell the story. And with Eric, uh, going back to interviewing him, I mean, there's, it was interesting to hear him talk, um, because some, at some points you're like, is he telling the truth? I love when he couldn't remember how many wives he's had too, but, um, was there that fine line of like, when do you trust him? When do you feel like he's really remorseful? You know, he's an interesting interview, I would think because you're not sure when you can trust him or not. Is, was it a difficult interview? I mean, it's the culmination of years of conversations where uh, I think at a certain point, you can't hide behind uh, too much and considering the position that he's in, uh, which for people who haven't seen it, right, you don't know uh, the position right. that he's in or where, whereabouts he, he currently is. Uh, calling home. And we, I think we just found that he, he is charming. Uh, he is lovable. And despite all his flaws, it's like, you can understand why people were drawn to him. He has this magnetic quality about his character. And, and whether that is a, oh, shucks, uh, I've come across you know, perfectly transparent and these are all my flaws and whatnot, but uh, he, he seemed like, it felt like at least for us that he was wanting to be authentic, that he really wanted to say like, okay, there's been reports done on me in the past. I've been definitely shown in a different light. I'm just going to lay it all out there and just see what comes. And, you know, <laughs> Like it's up, it's really up to the, to the viewer. We feel um, to take that away. But I mean, we, James and I have often talked about this series as like the real life Saul Goodman um, or Eric is like the real life Saul Goodman. And, yeah. and Saul Goodman is one of the greatest television characters uh, probably in the last couple of decades. And the reason why is because he's so flawed but he's still so likable and there's so many layers uh, 
uh, and you understand that like he, he's challenged with the decisions that he's making and that he's made. And Eric is very similar to that. So hopefully people, I, I, I think people might be surprised with how they feel about him over the course of the series. Yeah, that's, I was surprised my, about my own feelings about him. Um, I, I have to ask, I mean, the story on paper, it's like an obvious, it seems like a uh, doc series, but I'm wondering if his commercials really sold you on this project. <laughs> uh, the commercials were a big part, um, but it really was more of the clue into his character. Uh, it was the idea that he is the largest lawyer in the small town. And so in, in the area that he's in, in Eastern Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky has been totally decimated by the fact that coal is no longer really a thing. Like it, it, it coal, the coal industry boomed throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then now has just been basically totally wiped out. So you have a lot of young men, a lot of young people um, that are on these benefits and you have now two of the poorest counties in the entire country, Floyd County and Pike County, right next to each other. And Eric was born and raised in this area and knew exactly, essentially how to exploit the area. And what do you do when people need benefits and they need a lawyer? You make yourself famous for being a lawyer. So it was just that, that thought process of, yeah, of course, like, an average person is going to be like, oh, I know what lawyer to go to, but they're going to remember who they saw on all the billboards, all the commercials. I mean, he literally bought out almost all the advertising in the area. And then the outlandish way that he went about them. I mean, I mean, when you have a commercial uh, with monkeys playing characters that are making fun of Social Security, I, and that's just a level of brilliance I don't think we ever would have come up with. Right. They're pretty spectacular. Um you know, like McMillions, the series is about this serious crime, but there's humor uh, throughout um, all four episodes. I'm wondering how it, it that seems like to me anyway, it would be hard, you know, in writing, it would be hard. So in editing, is that was that a hard balance to strike? Uh, yes, it's always uh, a hard, I mean, comedy in general is is tough. And when when we toggle back and forth between humor and tragedy in the way that we have. And we, we, we did something very similar with McMillions. It for us was a re reflection of how life is very much similar to this. It can be very comedic in one instance and tragic in the next. You can, you know, laugh at one moment and cry in the next. And, and why not lean into that and, and find a way to make sure that even in the heavy moments, there can be levity. And we're certainly drawn to those types of stories, but to find that tonal balance is certainly something that we experiment with. And we love comedy, but we love the, just the moral weight of the decisions that people have had to go through in this story. And we felt that that was a significant part of this, but how you get there and where you get there and when you get there is... We, we felt like part of the, the balance. And so a lot of trial and error, uh, but <laughs> lots of that, <laughs> uh, you like we, and, and it's so subjective too, because it is certainly a thing that we love and we know maybe not everyone else will love it, but we felt like, Hey, let's just continue to do the things that, 
that in the way that we see it, because we find it to be both almost in an instant. I mean, I love in the third episode, you bring up, um, you bring into the series, some of his victims, um, some of the people who have really were injured and needed the benefits. Um, what was it like to get their participation and why was that important to the series to make sure they were included? That, that whole portion was a, was a key piece to the entire puzzle because when we first heard about it or even when you explain the, the story of Eric's Econ to people, it's really easy to think about the sensationalized weirdness of Eric and the whistleblowers standing up against a huge government entity you have a reporter that exposes things. You have so many different aspects to this whole thing. But what is really quickly forgotten is that there are human beings behind these social security numbers of these people trying to get benefits. And yeah, the people that went to Eric, not every single person deserved to get those benefits. That's part of the fraud. That's part of why he got in trouble. But a lot of people, most of the people that went to him did deserve them. And we immediately thought, okay, well, we have to hear from these people because they're still struggling to get their benefits. Once this all came out and Eric got busted, Social Security just cut everybody off. Instead of trying to determine who is part of it, who is not, you were guilty until proven innocent, which in this country, it's supposed to be the opposite. And we wanted them to have a voice because there's a lot of them are still fighting for the, their benefits to this day. Really? Oh gosh, they're still fight. It's crazy. Um, well, speaking of social security, I mean, you don't let them off the hook, obviously. And they're an important part of the story. Um, was it always, were you always going to highlight the social security administration and their basic dysfunction? I don't think that that was an intent out of the gate. I think that that was a discovery that was made through the people who struggled with how the, the system worked. And we certainly put a lot of trust and faith in uh, our system, right? In our government. And, and we want to ensure that, you know, this nest egg that we have. And, and that, I think the biggest struggle that people have with this story is the fact that you don't think about social security disability. Like when you think social security, most people just associate it with like, oh, that's for us when we retire and, and you know, to help us out make our, our bills. But the Social Security Fund also 130 billion of it go to this disability portion. And the people who were struggling um, to get benefits at this time, and then obviously the, like the whistleblowers who were discovering, hey, there was a problem in how the system was functioning. Um, Damien Paletta, the reporter, saw the problem and everyone was trying to ignore it and people were trying to hide it. And, and I think that there's like to go back to that idea of, of what happens when you ignore a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of times people ignore problems because you just think if I ignore it long enough, it'll just go away. Right. And in this case, it didn't. And when you have people like Sarah and Jennifer, these whistleblowers, try to continue, continue and continue to like bring this to light. Like you understand that, hey, the system is broken. Then you hear it from, from her, you hear it from, from Eric himself. And, and maybe it's not necessarily broken. It's just, it's so big. 
And it, it has issues like anything that, that operates at a high level. And, but what, what things are actually being done to prevent this from happening again? And that's the, the grand question that I, I think when people watch the series, they'll, they'll wonder. Um, and that is certainly a, you know, somewhat call to action to say, hey, maybe we should look at how to make this a little bit better because that fund is, is our nest egg. We pay into it every single month as, as Americans. And what can we do to ensure that it's not being depleted uh, without securities and safety in place? Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask this at the end, but is that kind of what you, you're you hoping um, audiences take away from the series to kind of take a, I guess, a, um, a bigger look or a look at what's going on with Social Security? I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, like, you ask Sarah and Jennifer that question, <laughs> uh, they will tell you absolutely. And it can list off the things that need to change. You ask Amy Paletta. If you have an extra couple of days for them to run through it, they can. <laughs> it's true. I, I think for us as storytellers, it's it's rooted a little bit more in the um, inspirational story of people who try to right or wrong. Mm. And when you see what was happening to Sarah and Jennifer throughout the course of the years that they were trying to right or wrong, and, uh, and people who are trying to make an example out of them to say, hey, if you try to report this, we're going to make it miserable for you. We're going to uh, discourage you from actually trying to speak up about it. And nobody should be discouraged uh, when they discover something like this. And we, we definitely want people to walk away seeing how important it is, despite whatever odds you might be faced to step up and uh, to, you know, we owe it to ourselves to right or wrong. I mean, Sarah and Jennifer weren't just doing it for themselves. They were doing it for everybody uh, who pay into this system. And that's inspiration. Like, and people should not be scared. And, and perhaps if anything, that is one of the things that should be reformed, right? Like how whistleblowers, um, you know, have protections and, you know, to make sure that, there are people who can do this. Yeah. Yeah. They were incredible. I would have, they, a lot of courage. It took so much courage. I was just like, wow. Um, speaking of storytelling, McMillions is a, it's similar in that it's this con, right? And you tell it, it's serious, but it's told um, in a humorous way with recreations. Um, and sit down interview. It's, it's similar. I'm wondering, are, are these those kind of films that you want to make going forward? Is this kind of like your, um, I can't think of the word. Is this what, are you making con series going forward? <laughs> there, uh, it's, it's really interesting because when we first, uh, when we first pitched McMillions, we're, we're sitting there, we're, we're talking to Lisa and Nancy at HBO. We're like, Okay, so we get con. It's a series about this big fraud case of the McDonald's Monopoly game everybody loves. Uh, and it's going to be funny. And they just could not comprehend what that meant until we showed them the first cut of the first episode. Like, oh, I get it. And for us, you know, it, we, we're, uh, we're doing several different 
con stories like fraud it's uh it's like the the true crime adjacent we've heard a ton of names now to describe it which is really weird which didn't exist before make the millions um but we uh what we're really finding is that we love to uh live in the gray area of life like life just isn't black and white and we like to dig in and see the decisions that people make and and sometimes good people making bad decisions and where that ends up and a lot of times that's that's a fraud case you know we have with mcmillions people that are taking a million dollars thinking they don't have to rob a bank or kill anybody so who are they going to hurt and if your best friend came to you or family member came to you to tell you you could win that who wouldn't do it in this case it's the same thing like you know, Eric Sikon saw that the government had a huge flaw with how social security worked. People were waiting years to try and get benefits that needed them. So he just figured a way to shortcut it just wasn't exactly legal. Um, and so for us, we really love to dig into the story. I mean, the name of our company is fun meter. So we do love to have a certain amount of fun with things, but it's almost as if we use the fund to lure you in to an interesting story. And then we have a very serious moral undertone that we want people to pay attention to. Well, I want to ask you about these, this idea of good people doing bad things or con artists. Um, it's all the rage these days. I mean, maybe you guys set it off with McMillions, but as you know, there's a Tinder swindler, bad vegan, now the big con. What do you think it is about uh, people conning other people that really gets uh, audiences excited and is really part of the zeitgeist right now in terms of entertainment? Hmm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, may, maybe there's an element of people realizing that uh, murder crimes uh, at a certain point were just getting a little bit too heavy and uh, being locked down in a pandemic, uh, <laughs> yeah, we need some It's already in our depressing. Life. I don't need a 25 <laughs> murder case to depress me more. Uh, I mean, I think we're just, we're fascinated by people's decisions. And that was the, the thing when we were making McMillions, it was like, okay, there was, there's no murder, uh, but it just, it's a quirky crime. And, you know, can it, can it really sustain multiple episodes? And it, it really could. I mean, that, I mean, there's so much more even to that story that we never got to tell because you just can't contain, you can't fit it into six episodes with the big con, the stakes are actually much larger uh, or we should say bigger uh, than <laughs> McMillions. And the, and, and that, you know, just is a circumstance of, of this situation uh, what's happening, you know, in Eastern Kentucky, in Appalachia and just like this part of the country that has in, in a lot of ways been ignored. Um, and, but to, to be able to, to understand how, like why people make such what, you know, what on the surface might seem as bizarre choices and, uh, and take advantage of other people. I think that there is a, you know, general like curiosity that, you know, exists there. And, and for us, one of the things that I felt like with Khan was on the surface, very easy to be like, oh, well, just, of course, he's a narcissistic, uh, greed, greedy individual who just wants to, you know, go out and 
travel the world and get married a bunch of times. But (laughs) there's, there is a lot more to it. Like, and and when you start to break it down and you understand the, the history and like what their environment and all the things that kind of put them in, in the place to actually make some of these decisions, it really humanizes. And I, and that's one of the things for James and I that, you know, aside from any story, I mean, con stories are, are great. I don't think we necessarily set out to make a, a con <laughs> story after McMillions. It just, we, we were fascinated by Eric. Um, and we were in a lot of ways, the, the distinction with Eric was that we, from, for the big con, we actually could tell the point of view of the mastermind, uh, of the person behind it. With McMillions, we didn't, we didn't have that. We never, we never got to Jerry Jacobson as much as we tried. I mean, we still try yeah. to this day. So that, that was an important quality of like, how can we really tap into those decisions from Eric himself? Right. Yeah. That's, okay. So that's, well, let me go back to what you said about, you know, making, making multiple episodes. How did you come up with the four episode format for this? And I also heard there's a podcast that's going to be coming out at the same time as when, when this is released. Correct. So for Brian and myself, we, uh, before we ever go try to talk to a network or anything like that, we really hash out the story. And both of us have worked in doc, both of us have worked in scripted. So we have this like, well, let's just write it out. Let's see like what it actually would be because we're always hypersensitive to things feeling like they're milked. Like we want it to be like jam packed with information wall to wall. And with this, it just really felt like four episodes was the sweet spot because you need to introduce the whistleblowers. You need to introduce Damien. You need to understand like this went all the way up to the Senate. Uh, then you need to feel the impact of when things fall apart. And then of course, when the walls close in on Eric, he goes on the run. And that, that story, which really goes through all of episode four, could have been its own four-part series. It is just such an unreal adventure that he went on. Um, and then it was really nice because, you know, documentaries are, it's a visual medium. Um, but there was so much information that we found out that we really couldn't fit into the documentary series. So that was the opportunity to do the companion podcast and we can drill down into some of the stories more and just talk to some more of the people and let them portray what happened to us and just talk about it without having to basically just like shoot a movie to show what happened. Okay. Okay. I mean, yeah. And just one other thing I wanted to ask about is I, and I think I, when I interviewed you about McMillions, I asked about this using recreations to help tell the story. Um, there's been a lot made about, you know, documentaries and are they real and are they, are they entertainment? Um, should you trust them? What is your take on using recreations and why do you, why do you think they, why did you decide to use them? And um, do you think they take away from the um, authentic, authenticity of the story at all? Well, certainly there's an element of subjectivity, whether or not it, uh, we, there's a narrative spin or some, a filmmaker decides to, to push it in one direction or, or, or another. For us, the, the purpose of using recreations is to make it immersive, uh, to really put you in that place. 
and make you and, and allow you to experience like what it was like for that person who's speaking, who's, who's telling that story. Uh, we've, we try to, we try to do our best at ensuring that the things that we do are as accurate as we can discover in the process of making the story. We don't do the re often when we do our recreations, uh, we do them towards the end of the process. So we have time to uh, go through archival footage. We have time to talk to our subjects. And, and if, if we can actually have our subjects there, it becomes a, is this how you remember it? Uh, and we can utilize their personal account to ensure that we are being truthful uh, to what was actually happening in that moment. So it, 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 we feel it to be an incredibly complementary element to storytelling. And we are lucky enough to be at this time in documentary filmmaking that we have great partners like Apple uh, TV Plus who, and, and, and the audience out there to say, hey, I, I want this. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how this story plays out uh, to be doing this at this time. I mean, you know, you just didn't see this type of filmmaking happening, you know, 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, really. So we're, we're fortunate to be doing it in the way we're doing it right now, we feel. Yeah. One of my favorites before we end is the when the judge falls off the boat. And then, <laughs> and then you show him with the bandage on his head going to lunch. I thought that was amazing. Um, that, well, <laughs> that story is, is crazy, and we corroborated it by a ton of people. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it was a wild one. Can't make that stuff up. Um, well, I want to thank both James and Brian for being here today and thank everyone for joining us. Um, and thank you both. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having us.